0: And so just in talking a little bit about Christmas lights, have you ever wondered about the origin of Christmas lights? Sometimes I get like a question in my head that just comes up and I have to just go and research it. And so um, I'll just take you on a little journey with me uh, about what I found out because I was curious about that the other day, particularly after I had a conversation with a friend about just Christmas traditions. And I was like, what are, what are all these related to? Um, and so uh, I read the other day, Uh, that the estimated yearly energy that our country uses for powering Christmas lights is enough to power the country of El Salvador. So that's one of the first things I found out. That's pretty interesting, right? We use a lot of electricity to power our Christmas lights. One article said that um, that makes up 6% of our nation's electrical load every December. So Christmas lights are a big deal, right? But when did we start using them to celebrate Christmas? Right? So we could start when the light bulb was invented, right? But Christmas lights actually came before the light bulb was invented. See, during the season of Christmas, particularly in Germany, Christians, if they could afford it, they'd light candles and they'd string them around uh, a Christmas tree. And there's this beautiful story about how that started, and it's one of those stories that kind of straddles the line between legend and history. Uh, I was really surprised when I was kind of looking into this that a lot of people credit Martin Luther, not just with the start of the Christmas light tradition, but with the, the start of bringing an entire Christmas tree into the house to decorate. Now, of course, we know non-Christian cultures, they'd use evergreen branches. Uh, but when I looked at the origin of bringing a whole tree itself into your home, lighting it and decorating it, most people point to Martin Luther. And if you don't know who he is, uh, he's the father of the Protestant Reformation. He's uh, the one who, at great risk to himself, called the Catholic Church to account, uh, reintroduced this notion that faith alone in Christ alone is what makes a person right with God, that faith and not works is what uh, our relationship with God is built on, and our church is technically a Protestant church in that tradition, believing those things. And so the story goes that when he was walking home on a winter evening, he was preparing a sermon, and in the brilliance of stars twinkling among the evergreens, he was inspired uh, and had a feeling of just the just awe uh, in seeing the lights and the trees together. And so to recapture this scene for his family, he put up a tree in the main room of his house, and he wired its branches with lighted candles. Uh, One children's book author who wrote a story about this, she had done some research, and she shared that he had six kids and that he wanted uh, the evergreen to remind them that when the world was at its bleakest moment, sad, helpless, and covered with the weight of sin, that God sent his son, everlasting life itself, to bring hope in the midst of the dark and the chill. And he wanted the candles to remind them that God sent light into the darkness to lead the Magi to Jesus. And so flash forward to the 1880s, and by then enough trees had gone up in flames, right, putting candles On an evergreen, they learned pretty quickly that that probably wasn't a great idea. I did learn that they didn't leave them lit for a long time. Usually it was just Christmas Eve. Parents would light them, kids would come down, and then they'd blow them out right away. But still, trees went up in flames, and they are looking for another option. Thankfully, the light bulb had just come out, right? And we know those have lit some trees on fire, too, but... Uh, Edward Johnson, who worked with uh, Edison, this is right after Edison patented the light bulb, uh, he strung together 80 wired lights, red, white, and blue. He put them together around a tree and placed that trunk on a revolving pedestal in his, uh, in his parlor, and it was all powered by a generator. And he called a reporter to come see, and the rest of that is history. Right? The lights drew a crowd. People would just stop and gaze at them. And now they're obviously everywhere, right? But think about how dark the world was before the light bulb and how marvelous it would be to see these lights during a time when you didn't even have electricity in your home. right? There's something about lights shining in the darkness. They're a comfort. right? They bring joy. They inspire Ah, they, they help you to feel like uh, things are going to be okay because you can see what's around you. Right? They break up the bleakness of winter. And that's why we love Christmas lights, I think. By their very nature, they're little lights that are surrounded by darkness. They're little lights that are breaking through the darkness. And that's how our passage begins today. It begins with this idea of a light shining in the darkness. We're in a sermon series called the Songs of Advent where we've looked at various songs that surround the coming of Jesus. Last week we talked about God's great symphony. Remember how the Bible opens with a song of creation and how creation sings back, but we needed Jesus to come and retune some of the instruments. This week, we're looking at what I'm calling the Messiah's Song, and I don't know if you've ever heard of Handel's Messiah. I'm sure many people here have. Uh, It's a musical piece composed by Handel, written in the 1700s, and it's become kind of a Christmas staple. It was originally an Easter piece, but now it's a Christmas staple, and he got his words for those songs from the book of Isaiah, which is the book that we're in today. And so one of the most well-known songs in that piece is For Unto Us a Child is Born. When I looked at what had the most listens out of that whole piece, it was that came in second. The Hallelujah Chorus was first, but that came in second, one of the most well-known songs from that piece. And uh, before we get to the famous part where a child is born, uh, Isaiah starts this song, this poetic prophecy, In chapter 9, verse 2, by saying, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And now he's speaking in past tense, but he's speaking about the future. See, these are God's words to ancient Israel for the future, written close to 800 years before Jesus came, during a really dark time. We've talked before about how God had formed this nation of Israel to be his people, that he formed them to shine a light to the surrounding nations to show that he is the one true God, to show how he is different from the other pagan gods. And there were good days and there were bad days for Israel doing this, right? Dark times and light times, but ultimately the dark won out. A series of sinful kings and poor choices resulted in a dividing divided kingdom. The northern kingdom kept the name of Israel. The southern kingdom took on the name of Judah, a prominent tribe in Israel. And it was the southern kingdom who had Jerusalem. They had the temple, and they had the kings that were from the line of David. All important history. But in both kingdoms... Kings who were supposed to be representatives of the Lord would go off and they'd worship idols, and they'd have as many wives as they had gods. The poor in the nation were being oppressed. The poor in the nation were being cheated. The priests, they often neglected their duty as spiritual guides and mediators. And meanwhile, the nation was constantly surrounded by enemies and captivity was always looming over them. And it was by the undeserved kindness of God alone that they even remained a nation. And God said that their falling away from Him would result in their destruction. And so, what would God do? God would send prophets to speak truth, to call them back to Him, right? Voices of truth who carried the very words of God. And that's who Isaiah was. That's who the one who's giving us these words today from the Lord. Sometimes a prophecy was about an event in the near future. Sometimes it was about an event in the far distant future. And sometimes it was about both. Uh, and it's into this darkness of corrupt kings and struggling citizens that Isaiah says the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, this land that was supposed to be light, right? But they're living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. This is a promise for the future. It's as good as done because God has said it, so it's spoken in past tense. But what does it mean? Right. Well, in the very broadest sense, it means that God has a plan for the darkness. God has a plan for those living in deep darkness. And that plan is to bring light. He's going to do something about it. And that something isn't dependent upon what Israel does or, or what we do. In fact, despite the darkness that they've brought, God plans to bring light. In chapter 49, Isaiah is going to com- clarify that this light is actually for all nations, that it's not just for Israel, that this light that God is going to send is a universal light. Because it wasn't just dark in Israel. Believe me, there were even darker uh, things happening in the surrounding nations than were happening in Israel. But it wasn't just dark back then either, right? We might have light bulbs now, but that doesn't mean that we are beyond dark times. There's so much to be thankful for. There's so much to celebrate. But there's a lot that we'd like God to change, isn't there? There's a lot of beauty, even just the everyday blessings that we can celebrate, but there's also a lot of horror in the world. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of loss all around the world. If we busy ourselves enough, we might just be able to forget it for a little bit, but there's no way to completely avoid it. It's always going to come back just recently, even in our own community, I was reading about two accounts. They happened within weeks of each other. Elderly, our elderly neighbors here on Cape Cod walking in the dark and getting hit by a car and killed. I just read one this morning about an 88-year-old woman who was missing. She was found sleeping on her neighbor's porch in 40-degree weather. Right, I've seen pictures of those who are experiencing homelessness finding places outside to sleep in the night. So many people in our community who are even being pushed out of our community by the housing crisis. At our own personal losses and struggles, having to say goodbye to people we love, dealing with stacks of bills that we can't pay, presented with problems that are out of our control. We can't fix them, we don't know how things are going to work out. We're dealing with our own personal darkness. Right, the darkness in our own hearts, or the darkness we ourselves have spread, even if we've tried not to, the things we've said or done that we can't take back, the things we think about before we fall asleep at night, the stuff that elevates our heart rates, and even just a general feeling of dread. Right, None of it actually takes a break at Christmas, does it? None of it actually starts fresh in the new year the way the movies say it does. I'm not trying to depress you or make things out to be worse than they are, uh, but it's important to get a sense of reality together and find common ground with the reality that's being presented in this scripture. Right? We need a light in the darkness. A light often comes with warmth. It comes with comfort. It brings the ability to see. Light brings joy. The Lord said through Isaiah, a light has dawned. So what's he talking about? Well, from verses 3 to 5, he goes on and talks about how God is going to end, uh, end oppression, how he's going to free the oppressed, how he's going to end war. He talks about how we're going to gather the war clothes, and we're going to burn them all. Right? And there's going to be joy among all the people. But how and why? Right? Verse 6, that takes us to this verse. For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Why? Because God is sending somebody. God is sending someone to make it happen. He's sending a child. The light that dawns on the people who are walking in darkness, he's a person. He's the Messiah. He's the promised King. He's going to come as a child. And centuries later, the Apostle Paul, who met him, would uh, the Apostle John, who met him, would describe him like this: In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Isaiah says the government will be on his shoulders. He'll shoulder the government. Right? In Israel, who was shouldering the government? Right, the kings. And they weren't doing a great job. Right, shouldering the government is a daunting task for humanity. I mean, we've certainly made improvements over the years with different experiments. But no matter what we do, checks, balances, committees, somehow corruption sneaks in right? And it's the vulnerable who take the brunt of that. But then God sends a vulnerable child, right? This light will shoulder the government. That's why we'll be burning war clothes because he's going to restore justice. He's going to govern with equity. He's going to establish peace on earth, And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's talk about those names. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor. And wonderful, we use that word a lot, but the way Isaiah is using the word wonderful is not like the way that we casually use the word wonderful. We've kind of muffled this word. When we say something's wonderful, we usually mean that it's delightful. Right? Like, I got an A on my test, Mom. Oh, wonderful. Great job. But wonderful here means beyond our understanding. It means awe-inspiring. Can you think of a time when you were in awe of something? Right? It's an emotion that we don't talk about a lot. A lot of people say that going to see the Grand Canyon in person inspires a sense of awe in them. I've never been there, but I've heard that. I mean, for me, looking up at the stars, thinking about how many there are, just the beauty of the light, that's awe-inspiring to me. Some people say it was the birth of their children. It's awe-inspiring, this new life, something bigger than me, something beyond me, and it's too much for me to comprehend. That's the wonderful that Isaiah is talking about. He's full of wonder. He is the wonderful counselor. And counselors in the Bible, they were filled with wisdom. Uh, Solomon, who wrote the book of Proverbs, a book of wise saying, he was a wise counselor. The Messiah was going to be called Wonderful Counselor. He makes wise choices and he guides us to do the same. He listens. He cares. We saw Jesus do this in his ministry on earth. He spent time with people. He shared truth with them. He taught them. He was called Teacher Right? rabbi, by his disciples. I mean, most non-Christians will even concede that Jesus was a wise teacher, wonderful counselor. And then he'll be called mighty God. Now, surrounding nations, they might have called their kings mighty gods, but Israel would never call a king mighty God. Their greatest commandment was that God was one and they were to worship him alone. And so this title It's not a casual, oh, yeah, our king is a mighty God. It's huge, mighty God. Earlier in Isaiah 7, this child gets a name, Emmanuel, meaning God with us. So the promise of light in the darkness is God himself. And nearly 800 years later, Jesus, with a word from his mouth, calms a raging storm. He heals sick children. He raises up the paralyzed, and he even raises the dead. He turned a child's lunch into food for 5,000 men. He will be called Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. Right? What does that mean? He's the originator. And don't get this confused. as Jesus being called God the Father. The New Testament reveals to us that God the Son is the Messiah. Right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They make up the Trinity. One God, three persons. But here, Messiah is called the Everlasting Father. And that's likely because kings in those days were called fathers of the nations that they ruled. Now, an imperfect example uh, to think about this would be thinking about our founding fathers or calling George Washington the father of America. But the Messiah is going to usher in a new era, and he's the Everlasting Father. His reign is never going to end. But even more, fathers of nations, they were supposed to be like fathers of families. They were supposed to be providers, protectors. This child was going to grow up to protect and provide for the children of Israel. And finally, prince of peace. He would usher in peace on earth. Remember that famous passage from Luke, the one that Linus reads in Charlie Brown Christmas? Peace on earth and goodwill to men. And there's no way the original reader could know the peace that was going to come through Jesus, right? Yes, of course, he's going to reign all over the earth. He's going to bring peace. This is what we wait for, right? The realized reign of Jesus, but the kingdom of God is going to be on earth as it is in heaven, right? And and peace has many facets. I think it helps us to break down peace and think about it in terms of three relationships, right? Peace with God, peace with others, and peace with ourselves. Right? Jesus would bring peace with God, peace with others, and peace within ourselves. And Jesus' peace, it covers all three. This is why we have that break in our gathering that we call the passing of the peace, right? because we worship the prince of peace. If you believe in Jesus, your faith is in the prince of Peace here's what the Apostle Paul says that that means, Romans 5.1. He says, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Justified means made right with God, sins forgiven, acquitted of the charges. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. He has made peace between us and God. In Ephesians 2:14 Paul writes he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility that dividing wall of hostility that he's talking about was between Jews and Gentiles right Israel and non-Israel people right the dividing wall of hostility Jesus has broken it down and he's made them into one right the wars will end Right? We don't have to wait for that day. Uh, Jesus has destroyed every man-made barrier that would keep us from peace with one another. Right? We, we put up all sorts of barriers, ethnic barriers, national barriers, from us having peace with others. Jesus has broken down those walls of hostility. He is the Prince of Peace. In Philippians 4.6, Paul tells us, Do not be anxious about anything But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The Prince of Peace provides inward peace. Right? The light that shines in the darkness. Isaiah just gives us this short song, right? And we have the benefit being on this side of Jesus' coming, of looking back, not only on this promise of light, but on the day the light dawned. Right, We have that advantage. We have the advantage of being on the other side of Jesus' birth. And believe it or not, as, as bad as the world even is today, things are better because of the birth of Jesus. Humanity has done sinful things in the name of Jesus throughout history. That is true. But we can't ignore the unprecedented goodness that has come as well. You and I don't have a grid for an ethic and a world with an ethic that's unaffected by the birth of Jesus. We we can't even imagine it. Just one small and very clear example: the earliest recorded baptismal pledge. This is from uh, the first century, from uh, a writing called the Didache. It's it's a church, early church writing. What people had to say before they were baptized and introduced into uh, local membership, they would have to recite that they would not murder their children. They would have to recite that they would not leave them out in the cold to die. Right? That sounds like a reasonable request to you and me, right? But that's our privilege, right? It was countercultural in the Roman world. Right? We don't have time to list the ways that Jesus has used his people to push back the darkness in the world in a unique way since the time of his incarnation. Right, We don't have time to talk about all those ways. That's just one little example from the very beginning of the church. Right, To be a member of this church, you have to promise that you won't murder your children. That's light shining in the darkness. But that darkness is still here. Right? It's kind of like Christmas lights surrounded by the dark, but it's there nonetheless. Think about the people, though, who heard this prophecy at first. They died before it came to fruition, but not without hope if they believed it. God's people waited almost 800 years for this baby to be born, but he came, the light of the world. That's what Jesus called himself in John 8. He didn't come with all the power that people wanted from him. He came in tenderness. If Jesus had come in power and might to rid the world of darkness, who of us would be left? Because darkness comes from self-centeredness, right? The self-centeredness of humanity. You can trace most suffering back to that root. So if Jesus came and eliminated that, who would be left? No, instead, to be a light for those walking in darkness, he himself surrendered to the darkness, right? The light was born, the light walked the earth, and the light was extinguished by self-centered humanity, right? When Jesus was on the cross in the middle of the day, what happened? The sky went dark for three hours, but when he rose, he rose in glorious light, and he ascended to the throne in heaven. And he had to do that. He had to take our darkness. He had to take our sin. He bore the punishment for our darkness so that we could be bearers of his light. Right? And now, as his people, we wait again. Right, We wait for the day when he's fully going to restore it all. Revelation 21, 23 says, on that day, there will be no need for sun. Why? Why would there be no need for sun? Because the glory of the Lord will give it light, and the Lamb, Jesus, will be the lamp, a light shining in the darkness, a light that overcomes darkness, and we wait. See, our hope is not just in heaven. It's in the resurrection and the restoration of all things. Heaven is a temporary paradise, but God has promised even more. He's promised a physical resurrection, an embodied eternity. But God makes us wait for things. That's just the way it goes. He makes us wait, and we hate it. But there's comfort in knowing that he does keep his promises. That's the glimmer that keeps us going. And we're not just supposed to wait and, and think on how hard times are. We're supposed to be bearers of the light. Jesus says this to his disciples in Matthew 5, 14. He says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You are the light of the world. Isn't that wild to think about? I I thought Jesus was the light of the world, right? Doesn't it almost feel wrong to say that we, the church, are the light of the world? Well, Jesus said it not my words, right? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, but the light didn't come just to shine on the people. The light came and lit the people like lamps, right? We are called to be like Christmas lights in the darkness. And it gets very practical. He says, let your good deeds shine before others. Walk in the way of Jesus, loving God, loving your neighbors. Turn the order of the world upside down as you move from selfish to selfless. Right? Consider who and how you can serve while you wait. Right? It's okay to long for a better day. We should long for a better day. But let's use that longing to connect with others who are in the same boat. Right? Let's let it spur us on to make today better for somebody as we wait for God's promises. So who around you is ignored? Right? Who around you has a need that you can meet? Maybe it's just as simple as giving away some of your time. Right? That's our most precious resource. Sometimes we minimize the impact that just giving away our time to another person can make, I truly believe that no matter our circumstance, we can serve in some way, right? That said, maybe this season you're in a hard place, right? And before doing something, you just need to be reminded of God's love for you. You just need to sit in the goodness of God, you know, kind of like sometimes you come to church and you just need to let the worship music be sung over you, right, and, and not sing, that's okay. We all need reminders of God's presence and his promises. That's why we come here every single Sunday. You know, we don't obviously don't have church bells, but it used to be a thing that churches would ring their bells throughout the day as a reminder to everybody that God was present and as a call to worship him. Uh, churches have been ringing bells since, uh, AD 400, 1600 years. And since we're talking about songs, I wanted to share the story, uh, behind one of my favorite Christmas carols. I like it because while it's full of hope, it's honest about pain and I like the cheery ones too, but we need a space during Christmas to process the hard things too, Right? They don't take a break for the holidays. I can vouch for that. Some of the hardest things in my life have happened around the holidays. right? And then they didn't stop just so I could celebrate Christmas. On Christmas in 1863, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow sat down and he penned a poem called I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. In less than a decade, it was put to music. You might have heard this song before, but a lot of people don't know the story behind it. See, he was the widowed father of six children, the first child they lost. His wife had died two years before, after her dress had caught on fire in a very unfortunate accident. He was so severely burned trying to save her that he had to miss her funeral. His face was so burned that he gave up shaving. That's why he's known for having a long beard. Right after that, a year after that, his son went off to fight for the Union and the Civil War. They were from Cambridge, Mass. His son got deathly ill in the army camp and he recovered and then got shot around Thanksgiving in 1863. At first he thought he had been shot in the face, but he learned that he was actually his shoulder, that he was almost paralyzed, but he missed being paralyzed by just an inch. It would take six months for him to recover. And so that Christmas, he sat down and he heard the church bells ringing from the churches in Cambridge. And he heard people singing, Peace on Earth, that famous Christmas anthem. That's what they did on Christmas. And the sound of that, the sound of that was so dissonant with his own heart and his own pain. Maybe you feel that way this Christmas, or or maybe somebody you know. Right, so in the midst of a war-torn country of tragic losses, of his son nearly dying, he writes this song. And this is a little different than what we normally do, uh, but I want to listen to it and just take a moment to reflect. And maybe it will mean something to you. Maybe it's just another song. But before we respond in worship this morning, let's just reflect that waiting for the Lord is hard. Right? If that's not you, it's surely somebody you know who's in pain this Christmas season, right? That said, there's hope, right? God keeps his promises. The birth of Jesus is what reminds us of that.